Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. From KYW News Radio 1039 FM, this is Bridging Philly, connecting our communities on the issues that matter to you. Presented by Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives. Hi, I'm Raquel Williams. Coming up on Bridging Philly, it's Black Maternal Health Week. Antoinette Lee, Sharade Howard, and I come together for a powerful discussion with Dr. Elena McDonald. We'll talk about the frightening statistics and morbidity rates for mom and baby. There has to be systematic change. There has to be change across healthcare systems. And we continue the conversation with our newsmaker this week. The Oshun Family Center's mission is to provide racially concordant care to members of the Black community that are struggling to cope with life transitions. The Black maternal mortality rate is three to four times higher than our white counterparts nationwide. And Antoinette Lee has some exciting news to share on our special program. It's all coming up on Bridging Philly. Welcome to Bridging Philly. I'm Raquel Williams. And I'm Antoinette Lee. And I'm Sharada Howard. April is recognized in the United States as National Minority Health Month, which is a month-long initiative to advance health equity across the country on behalf of all racial and ethnic minorities. April 11th kicks off Black Maternal Health Week. It's considered to be a week of activism to foster deeper conversations about morbidity rates for Black mothers and their babies. Now, according to the National Institute of Health, national severe maternal morbidity rates have nearly doubled over the past decade. They were 166% higher for Black black women than white women from 2012 to 2015. Now, statistics show that black women are three to four times more likely to experience a pregnancy-related death than white women. What's worse is the CDC claims three out of five of pregnancy-related deaths could have been prevented. We thought this issue was important enough for all of us to gather together and talk about all of the issues surrounding what would be one of the most intimate and rewarding experiences a birthing person could have, and that is the gift of motherhood. Joining us today is Dr. Elena McDonald. She's a board-certified pediatrician in Philadelphia and one half of Twin Sister Docs. Dr. McDonald and her sister, Delana Wardlaw, are passionate about educating our communities about their health. Welcome, Dr. McDonald. Thank you for having me. Well, of course, Dr. McDonald, those statistics that we just mentioned are just pretty much unsettling. Can you talk about some of the factors that contribute to the morbidity rates for Black expectant mothers? Well, one of the major factors is simply access to quality health care. We know that uh, in this country, lack of of access to quality health care has been a major issue for years. And not only in addition to access to quality health care, you're also dealing with things such as implicit bias. You know, you go into the hospital and you are not receiving the care that you should receive because individuals who should be taking care of you have made assumptions about you, and that affects their ability to give you the quality health care that uh, African-American women should get every time they go into the hospital. And that, on top of just the 400 years of the systemic racism that we have dealt with, you know, going back to slavery and then uh, to Jim Crow, and then again, still dealing with, you know, systemic racism to this day, 
those are all the major factors that leads to this huge disparity that really should not be there. Because in all actuality, when it comes to maternal mortality, socioeconomic status does not decrease that risk for African-American women. So me, you know, I am classified as an educated woman, you know, in, in, in a higher socioeconomic status. If I walk into the hospital to have a child, tomorrow, and then I am still three to four times more likely to suffer severe complications than a white counterpart. Mm. Dr. McDonald, how much do existing underlying health conditions play a role in those outcomes? Existing health conditions play a huge role. So if you're not healthy going into your pregnancy, then that increases the risk that you're going to have complications going into your pregnancy. And, And throughout the pregnancy, if you have asthma that's poorly controlled, then your pregnancy is going to stress that even more. If you have diabetes that's uncontrolled, your pregnancy can stress that even more, as well as hypertension. So if you are not healthy going into the pregnancy, yes, you are more likely to have complications. African-Americans in general are more likely to have more chronic conditions because, again, we go back to the lack of access to quality health. And an example of that would be cardiac health. This has not been addressed. And then you go into pregnancy and exacerbates the issue. Absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, again, pregnancy itself, it is one of the best moments of a woman's life. However, pregnancy, it stresses the body. So even the healthiest woman could still experience some some difficulties going through pregnancy. However, if you're not healthy going into the pregnancy, then then that increases your risk altogether. What are some of the the more common ailments and and things that uh, women have to deal with uh, regards to pregnancy that they wouldn't have dealt with before pregnancy? In general, just even the basics as, you know, the weight gain, right? Mm -hmm. And then sometimes you're dealing with the emotional aspect of of pregnancy. What was initially a sperm and an egg that is growing into a full-blown person, you know, over a 40-week period. And, you know, you, you have to be mindful of what you're putting into your body. You have to be mindful of, of your day-to-day activities because everything you do, really, your child really, really depends on that. I mean, you are literally the lifeline to the baby that you are going to deliver after that, after that 40-week pregnancy. So, you know, some women during pregnancy, you could be completely healthy and then you can start to develop high blood pressure. Right. Or, you know, you could develop what we call gestational diabetes, Right. Those are some of the most common things that we see. And if the mother's body is starting to get stressed too much, then it may lead to an earlier delivery than what we would have liked. Now that as a pediatrician, that now that comes over to me, I have a baby who was born premature who may have certain outcomes based on being premature. So let's talk about mental health before, during and after and how important that is. And of course, as a black woman, you have many stressors that other people don't have going into pregnancy. How much bearing does that have? That has a huge bearing. Again, you know, just the overall mental stress of dealing with the pregnancy, but then you're dealing with day-to-days. If you're a student, if you are, you know, in the workforce, uh, depending on what your support system is in your home, we go out every day, we go out any given day, we could become victims of of, of racism, you know, uh, institutional biases, implicit bias. So all of those stressors can wear down on African-American women. And then as African-American women, we are, it's kind of ingrained into us to take care of everyone and we often forget about ourselves. So we have to remember to take care of ourselves, not only physically, but we also have to remember to take care of ourselves mentally. You did mention bias at one point. And um, of course, we're familiar with so many different stories of 
how, you know, black women were ignored when, you know, complaining about something with regards to their pregnancy in the hospital. What have you seen and heard? Can you give us any examples that point to that, how we're treated just a little different than uh, our white female counterparts? Sure. So just in general, things that you hear are that they don't pay attention to your, your symptoms as much. Sometimes your symptoms are blown off and your symptoms could really be the precursor or early signs of something really significant going on, you know, or, you know, you're having significant pain. Studies have shown that oftentimes pain in African-Americans is not treated accordingly. Mm -hmm. So those things alone leads to negative outcomes. We hear from time and time again, world-renowned tennis champion, Serena Williams, has significant issues after she delivered her baby and she practically had to beg or insist she was essentially blown off. Mm. And again, no matter what your socioeconomic status, it comes back to these longstanding history of, of, institution, of institutionalized racism that has a negative impact on with uh, Serena, we've heard a lot about how she really had to advocate, you know, to, to save her own life. Um, yes. And we know that, you know, education is the key to advocating yourself. What else can black women do to ensure the best possible outcomes uh, when they're expecting? One, try to get a support system. When you go to your appointments, whether or not it's, it's your significant other or if you have a good friend or if you have a family member who could go in and advocate for you. Because sometimes when you are the patient and you're in the middle of everything, sometimes it becomes more difficult for you to put your questions together, you know, at that time, or even call back if you have questions. So sometimes you just want to make sure you have that support system in place. But what I tell my patients all the time is that don't be afraid to ask questions. And you keep asking questions until you get the answer that you think is an acceptable answer. Now, as I always say, it may not be the answer that, that you like, but it has to be an acceptable answer you know, and make sure that people are talking to you in a language that you understand. Sometimes as physicians, we start talking in a language and we think that you clearly understand, but you may not understand. Just in my experience alone, I had to realize that, okay, you may think you are communicating properly, but you're not. And if you're not, then that that creates another gap. Uh, And also too, when talking to your patients, you got to make your patients feel comfortable. When I talk to my families, I am talking to them. I don't just see them as a patient. I see them as a person. Make it clear to them, this is a no judgment zone. You can ask me any questions. You can tell me what your concerns are. Because I could be telling a patient something. And if there's a particular reason why they won't do it, I need them to feel comfortable to tell me why. And if there's another way that we can manage the issue, then we can try to go that route. But if there is no other way to manage the issue, then I need to be able to explain to you, I understand your concerns. I understand why you have these issues, but let's try to discuss it so that we could come to a happy medium so that we can get you treated the way you need to be treated. What are your thoughts on having a doula and a midwife to really advocate for you on that end? It whoever you feel most comfortable with who will come in and be able to advocate for you. Absolutely bring them in. Dr. McDonald, these um <laughs> these negative outcomes and the disparities have been in existence for decades. I'm just wondering, does the medical community truly recognize that this is going on and are they doing anything and making any changes? That is the big overarching thing. There has to be systematic change. There has to be systematic change. There has to be change across healthcare system. And it really has to start from the C-suite 
all the way down to the person who is coming to, to who's security, who's checking you in, who's coming to clean your rooms, who's bringing you your food. Everyone has to be one, aware of the community that they serve. Because if you don't understand your community, you're not gonna be able to give them proper health care. You, you, yes, you have your patient and medical conditions, but you have to understand what's going on around them in their world. You have to understand you know, the, the, their living environment. You have to understand the challenges that they're dealing with every day because you may be telling them, I need you to do this, but they have a clear barrier which preventing them from doing that. So there has to be what we call cultural competency. Yes, you're gonna start with the doctors you've been doing it for 20 years, but you also have to start in medical school. You have to start in nursing school. You have to start early on in people's careers to one, to help them recognize their biases. Some people may not even know that they're biased. So you have to help people recognize their bias and then help them address their bias because you really have to be able to get past those biases to provide appropriate care. Is there any way that these issues can be addressed through legislation? That is a great question. And I think if there is enough push, then it may be able to be addressed legislatively. However, you know, when you're in the hospital or your office every day and no one is on your over your shoulder, you know, it, it is um, it's tough. It becomes really tough or what have you. It's very easy for me because I, too, have been a victim of implicit bias, right? So, you know, when I go, depending on the day of the week, people may look at me completely differently. Mm -hmm. Depending on, you know, if I'm in my office, if I'm out of my office, people may look at me differently. But it, it, it has to be a system-wide approach. And, and, and again, you know, hospitals have to be held accountable. Now, how you pull that in legislatively, I'm not quite sure. But absolutely, you, you know, you want to be able to make sure that change is going to come because we've been talking about this literally for decades and COVID came along and COVID really just magnified it to the hundredth degree. But we already knew it was there, Mm -hmm. but COVID just showed us, you know, why these disparities going on, why African-Americans are dying at a um, disproportionate rate. COVID and, and George Floyd made us really Mm. start to look and, and, and reevaluate things again. That's exactly what I was going to speak to. Uh, having the political challenges and climate that we went from directly into COVID, and now this has opened up wounds that were already there, just maybe a little wider and put a little salt in them. And looking at, you know, personally, how you think we can address these things going forward to make it a little bit easier, make it a little bit more accountable. One, it's not going to happen overnight, but it has to start, right? We always have these conversations, but where do we go after we have the conversation? How do we start to enact change is one, we start with the big players. You know, we got to hold our CEOs of our of our healthcare institutions, our CMOs, we got to hold them accountable. You know, we have to look at their statistics and say, okay, why are your African-American women patients having, you know, three to four times the mortality rate as your white patients, okay? What are we doing to change that? And has your institution showed some improvement or is your institution still where it was 20 years ago? You know, do you have systems in place to have mandatory training? Whether or not you think you're culturally competent or not, you still need to come to this class. You're African-American woman, you know, but you still need to come to this class. 
yes, Mr. So-and-so, yes, you are white now. You've been taking care of African-American people your, your whole career. You still need to come to this class. Some things are just not optional. You know, if you're going to work here, everyone needs to participate in this training. These are the systems that we're going to have in place. Well, Dr. McDonald, of course, you, as we said before, you're part, you're one half of Twin Sister Docs. Uh, yes. You and your sister, uh, Dr. Wardlaw, together. Uh, talk about what you guys do for the community in terms of helping the community, educating them on how to have better outcomes, and even after birth, keeping our our newborns safe. Dr. Wardlaw and I, we work. We've been working in underserved communities our entire career, and we come from underserved communities. We come from North Philadelphia, the Strawberry Mansion section of Philadelphia. So we have seen firsthand the outcome of not getting adequate adequate health care. So we're in our practices every day, but we really wanted to get a broader reach, which is why we started Twin Sister Docs and social media. And a lot of it is really to just educate people who relate to us. We can relate to them and they're more likely to hear what we're saying because they trust us. We're the trusted messengers. And the information, the accurate information that we provide to you allows you to become an advocate in your health care. So I can't give you specific information about your health. However, I can say in your 40s, should be thinking about getting a mammogram, you know, and, and you go back to your doctor and you say, doc, well, I heard these doctors on the radio. I saw them on TV. Or I saw them on social media and they were saying I should get a mammogram. Because, and I'm this age, so can we talk about that? So that trust translates into action with your healthcare and, and ultimately leads to transformational outcomes. African-Americans carry the burden of so many diseases, obesity, heart disease, high blood pressure, diabetes, asthma. We carry so many burdens and we want to try to try to change that. We want to try to change that dynamic. So our goal is to give you the information to go have a discussion with your particular doctor. When... COVID came around, we had to do a lot of education because African-Americans said, listen, we don't trust the medical community. We don't trust the government. We don't, we don't, we don't trust this vaccine. So we did a lot of education around that. And, you know, and, and part of what we do now is, is that we go into schools and underserved communities to make sure that those children are getting vaccinated. So those are the things that, that we do as twin sister docs, because we just wanted to have a broader reach because African-American physicians is still a, quite a limited number of us. And African-American women physicians, 2%. 2%. Wow. wow. So, you know, we can't treat everybody, but we need you when you go see your doctor, no matter what color they are, we want you to be able to advocate, your, advocate for yourself so that you can get the best care possible. Now, as a pediatrician, um, I remember after, when I was having my first child, I realized, oh, wait a minute, I need to find a pediatrician, you know, because the baby's coming and the baby's going to have to see a doctor. Um, but uh, and, and we, we prepare, we prepare, we try to figure out, OK, how do I make the environment the most safe it can be? What do you tell your patients as far as, OK, here's what you need to do to keep the baby safe? So, so typically, you know, I meet most of my patients, most of my newborns and their families, usually within the first few days of life. So usually I see them by, by day of life five or day of life seven. And we go over everything that happened during the delivery. But then I ask them basic questions, right? And I'll say, you know, who's in the home, right? Who's in, because you want to know how many people are in the home. A lot of times it's inter multi-generational families. 
that's in the home. You know, you know, you want to know where's the baby sleeping? Do you have a bassinet? Do you have a crib? What position are you putting the baby? We don't want a bunch of stuffed animals, pillows, blankets in, 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 in the bassinet. So those are key things we talk about. We also talk about, okay, are you breastfeeding? How's that going? Because some people don't realize how difficult breastfeeding is. Right. Right. So some people think it's just you wake up and you have a baby and that baby latches and it's no problem. Right. No, it doesn't work no, like that. It doesn't. A lot of times. So acknowledging that it may be difficult to breastfeed. Also acknowledging mom's mental health. Mom, how are you doing? How are you dealing with it? I know you're stressed. I know you're exhausted. I know some days you feel like you want to cry. But overall, how do you feel about your baby? Because postpartum depression is real. And as pediatricians, we're usually the first ones to see the moms after they leave the hospital. So we realized we started asking those questions, but also explaining to the moms that the reason we're asking this question is not because it's you, it's because we know that it happens to a lot of women. So we're asking you these questions just to kind of help you navigate. You know, our mothers and grandmothers, they had their own methods mm-hmm. for caring for babies. And, you know, some of those may not hold up to this day. Um, so what are some older practices that have, have changed? So that's one of the biggest ones is that you give me your baby water, yeah. right? You don't need to give your baby water. There's enough in the formula when you make their formula or when you give them breast milk. And, and, and I make sure I bring that up because usually there's a grandmother or great aunt somewhere along the line. Say, oh, give the baby water. So that's that, <laughs> that, that's one of the that's one of the biggest things. And then also, too, what we just talked about, you know, with the umbilical hernia, um, where, 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 where people may call it an Audi and yeah. they're trying to fix it. Yeah. And I tell them, no, it'll, it'll most times it corrects itself. Um, you know, so those are the two big things. And then also talking to them about having the baby sleep by themselves not co-sleeping with the baby in your bed. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times it's just a mental block that parents have to get by, you know? And I said, the baby's okay. You know, you're training the baby. You're training the baby, you know, where they need to sleep. And I said, you want to start now? Because if you try to, one, you, we don't want you sleeping in the bed with your baby because you're tired. You are super tired. Mm-hmm. And we don't, you know, ever want an accident from you, you know, unwittingly just, you know, rolling over on your baby. So we bring those things up and I always bring it up in a non-judgmental way. And some say, you know what? I appreciate that. And some say, you know what? I need you to talk to my mom. And I'll say, bring her into the next visit. I know that first year of life for babies, extremely critical, especially in, in the black community. And I can remember my experiences just getting up every hour just to see the baby breathing. <laughs> she okay? She okay? <laughs> I mean, it's such a nerve wracking uh, situation to go through. But, um, you know, when it comes to our babies, that's something that we really have to pay attention to. And I did mention SIDS. Uh, is this more of a problem in the, in, among, in the black community or no? And what, what causes that? So SIDS really is it's like a wastebasket term that we use, and it, and it means sudden infant death syndrome. And usually that is often the term that, that a baby will have if they've, they've died suddenly and we don't have an underlying cause. Mm-hmm. We cannot figure out, you know, okay, was it the baby's heart? Was it the baby's lungs? Was the baby's brain? We don't, you know, we can't figure it out. A lot of times that, that SIDS label is given to, for the cause of death. Sudden infant death, we realized years ago, we could decrease that percentage of numbers significantly simply by putting these children on their backs, by putting these children on their backs. But what happens is, is a lot of people didn't know that that's why 
that that's how you could decrease the risk. Mm -hmm. So it's important for us again to to tell, to tell, to tell our patients, to tell our patients. And you're right. A lot of African-Americans will say, well, my babies, you, and, and, and and don't get me wrong, because I have patients of, I have, my, my practices are very diverse. And some patients will come back, well, he loves to sleep on his stomach and she loves to sleep on her stomach or what have you. And I'll say, I understand that. I understand that. However, we are trying to keep your baby as healthy and as safe as possible. So if you are putting your baby down, and you are leaving the room or you are going to sleep, the baby's going to sleep for a long period of time, they have to go on their back. Now, if you're in the room with the baby and the baby is awake, and you, I mean, the baby, you're observing the baby and the baby's awake and the baby's on their belly and okay, for a few minutes. However, this is really where they should be to protect them as much as possible. And again, it's just having that, you know, having that, you know, having that discussion with families. And what about resources in general? You know, you look at so many uh, communities and there's a lack of resources. What would you suggest in terms of someone's trying to do their due diligence? Yes. So one, use your, use your physician as your resource, right? If you, um, and, or anyone, you know, any, if you have any other family members who are in the medical field or other family members who are just well versed with accurate information, accurate information is key right? With accurate information. And then also you could talk to your doctor about certain books you could read. There's plenty now books. <laughs> a lot of people just pulling things up, you know, pulling things up online, but giving them appropriate resources to, 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 to read. We often have pamphlets and things in our office and we give them information of, of, of key things that they should be doing as far as, you know, how you know, feeding your baby and, and, and then, you know, how dealing with sleep and, you know, um, physical activity, keeping your home safe, all of those things. So your resource could be right at your doctor's, but there are plenty of resources online. But again, they have to be, they have to be um, accurate, accurate resources. So don't go to Facebook and Instagram (laughs) (laughs) for your baby due diligence, I guess. Because because some of the information out there literally is, it's, it's really irresponsible to be up there, you know, for, mm. for, for lack of, it, should, it shouldn't be there. And you said accuracy is of the utmost importance. Oh, accuracy and the source, right? The source, the is, source. Is, of the, is, is of the utmost importance because huh, what we have seen, if you go back to the pandemic, some of the sources and some of the information out there was so bad that said it's literally killing us. Mm. Literally killing us because people are going, you know, making decisions based off of information that is completely, completely wrong. All right. Now, I do have another question because, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about bringing the baby home and all my ex- the experiences and advice that I was given <laughs> in the beginning. Uh, and one, I don't know if this is an old wives tale. Maybe you could shed light on it because of COVID. You know, don't bring anybody around the baby for three months. You know, this is what I was hearing from my family. Three months. Don't bring the, the baby out. Don't bring anybody around the baby. Keep people away from the child for a little while. What it, I mean, it, it, with COVID, Maybe that is a good idea to do, but how should how should we be handling that? That has some validity, and I will tell you why. Because your newborn's immune system is not fully developed. So a basic virus that you may have or your five-year-old may have or, you know, your cousin may have may just be a cough or runny nose for them, but it could be devastating to the baby. So there is some validity to that about being careful about who you bring into your home, who you bring into your circle. So I typically will tell my patients before COVID, you know, because, you know, before COVID, you have a baby, everyone's coming to see the baby. 
everyone's happy, right. it's a joyous occasion. So I tell them, listen, if someone is sick, cough, runny nose, vomiting, diarrhea, fever, whatever, they cannot come see the baby. They because they are handling it. However, if your baby gets sick, it can be devastating to the baby. Now with COVID, you don't know who has what on any given day. So I said, you have to be extremely careful about who is coming around your baby. I often tell my parents of newborns, do not take your newborn to a one-year-old birthday party. You have all these children running around and somebody's likely going to have a runny nose or a cough and sneezing somewhere. I also tell my families as much as they don't want to hear it. Again, this is pre-COVID. You have to be careful going into closed environments that you can't control. For example, a church. Right. If you go into a church and somebody's sitting in the pews behind you and they're coughing and they're sneezing, you don't have control over Mm-mm. it. So you got to be careful going into those spaces with your babies. Now, as they start to get older, they start to get vaccinated and they're building their immune system. So, again, because of COVID, people now understand how vaccines really work and how it's there to build your immune system. So in the show, we've addressed, you know, some of the challenges uh, surrounding childbirth. Um, but we don't want to scare any expecting mothers, <laughs> including myself. We have a bridging Philly baby due yes, we do. this oh. summer. <laughs> Congratulations to Antoinette Lee. Absolutely. Congratulations. And do you see the glow? She's glowing. <laughs> yes. So what are some words of, of encouragement or positivity that we can offer um, expecting mothers out there? Uh, we always say, take care of yourself so you can take care of your baby. It is the best time. It is the busiest time of your life, but it is the best time of your life. Enjoy every second of your baby because they change every day. They take lots and lots of pictures. So now we have all these wonderful phones. You can take pictures for days, you know, and just enjoy your child. Read to your child, sing to your child, talk to your child. That nurturing is so important and you get so much. When you become a mom, your whole outlook just becomes totally, totally different. You know, it's it's a different kind of love. Can't wait. Looking forward to it. All right. Dr. Uh, Alina McDonald of Twin Sister Docs. Thank you so much for joining us in Bridging Philly. You have been a wealth of information. Uh, we are so glad to be able to have you on and shed some light on this, on some of these disturbing um, statistics. But at least we have some information to arm ourselves to try to have the best outcome possible in our communities. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. The mission of the Ocean Family Center is to fight the stigma of mental health by providing quality therapeutic services and psychoeducation to women. It's all about treating the whole patient. Sharaday Howard sits down with Salima McNeil of Ocean Family Center in Philadelphia. As we continue the conversation surrounding black maternal health, we're shining a light on Salima McNeil of the Oshun Family Center in Philadelphia. McNeil is a reproductive psychotherapist, a professionally trained doula, as well as a traumatic birth survivor herself. Now she's leading a team of researchers studying how having access to support services can save the lives of black mothers and their babies. Welcome, Salima, to Bridging Philly. Thank you so much for having me today. For many black women, pregnancy is fatal. We know this. And birth mortality rate also frightening. So let's talk about your study and why you're tackling this. So we are in collaboration with Temple University, the Center for Urban Bioethics, which is ran by Dr. Sharon Herring um, and her team over there. And we've collaborated with them to collectively put together this study proposal um, that we submitted last year. 
No, actually the year before, so 2020, and then we were awarded in 2021 with a multi-million dollar uh, grant from the Patient Center Outcome Research Institute um, to do five years of studies of Black birthing people in the city. Um, and we did that because myself and the Maternal Wellness Village all had a similar idea of like what services are needed to tackle the Black maternal mortality rate and what support that we need to do in order to get the evidence base to impact change. And so when we were approached by the ladies at Temple, um, we really sat down to iron out what this partnership could look like. And we applied for several grants with this Bakuri grant being one of them. And one thing that was really important for us is for a for us bias model. So the study that we are doing has been curated by black women for black birthing people here in the city. And so we have a multi-level approach. So let's talk about that. Yes. Um, so we have, it's a clinical trial, so to be clear. And we're very intentional about the design of the study and for people to know who is behind the study. So this isn't a study that is a bunch of white people in the background that are just putting out black faces to get the black bodies in. This is really entrenched in us. It is something that we developed collaboratively for Black people. And so it's a clinical trial and it's two levels where we, we are comparing traditional or standard level of obstetric care to what we have the bonus level of obstetric care, um, which is including a doula, a lactation support, and a psychotherapist that will do an evaluations in pregnancy and post-pregnancy to get a gauge on where you are emotionally and providing support for those things. Um, we are also have an institutional level where we are working with certain departments within the health system to um, conduct anti-racism training. So it's not just direct service where we are providing it from, you know, from the bottom on up, but also have the support from the higher ups at Temple to also go from the top down. So we're looking at improving the whole experience, not just saving lives. We're looking about standard of care as well. So let's Correct. talk about, I guess, we can go into statistics in a little bit because that's inevitable, uh, right? But let's talk about the trauma going in and then coming out of the hospital. People don't think in terms of actual uh, birthing trauma and how you're treated when you go in and how different it is. The disparities between how black women are treated and white women are treated when you go into a hospital. Can you attack that? Yeah, so this is the reason why we not only have the interpersonal level that provides the direct service, but we were super intentional about connecting with the health system as a whole, because we know that respectful maternity care um, leads to better outcomes. And what we do know is that racism is at one of at, at the top and the forefront of why Black bodies are perishing in health systems. Um, so within working together, we knew that we will be stronger together than separate. And so with improving overall healthcare, it is our hypothesis, because I'm a researcher now and I have fancy words, <laughs> is to show, um, to have the evidence base to say, you know what, when Black families, when Black bodies are treated in a respectful manner, where not just the physicians or the nurses or the techs, but the security guard and the front desk person also have the same level of anti-racism training and diversity, equity, and inclusion support, that it changes the experience for the entire family, for the entire system. So that's why it's been really salient for us to include those components. So statistically, what are we looking at here with regard to Black women and pregnancy and fatalities? Yeah, but on the baseline, um, 
the black maternal mortality rate is three to four times higher than our white counterparts nationwide. Globally, our mortality rate is one of the worst. When we look at different countries and their maternity leave, their ability to bond and connect, how they don't over-medicalize childbirth because it's a very natural experience. They have much better outcomes in Sweden and Norway and different um, countries overseas than we have here in one of the most technologically advanced countries in the world. We were just funded and we have this opportunity to plan, roll out and implement. And that's where we are now, which I am super excited about because as we are putting things together, we have done a series of focus groups. We did two rounds of focus groups that include the voices from patients, from community providers, nurses, doctors, um, support staff. Everybody has had a hand in how we develop this program for rollout and implementation. And I will be so excited to fast forward five years, come back to this conversation and show you all of the amazing things that we've been able to accomplish. I'm so excited about that, too. And I do want to know what people are saying. So you're asking them all of these questions. Have you gotten an idea of what the uh, consensus is? Overall, the community, the patients, providers, they are very excited. They're like, wow, we've been waiting for something like this. We want this to be the change. We want to embrace this program and roll it out for all 436 participants that are going to uh, be included in this study. However, we do know that there are some barriers to getting there. And some of the barriers that have come up are around culture, atmosphere, treatment, which are all things that we are looking to address within our study. So that leads me to the midwifery as well as doulas and their vital role and maybe making sure that not only do more women survive, but also their babies. Absolutely. Uh, One thing that I find that I admire about Temple University is that they are taking the necessary steps to change birthing outcomes for Black birthing people um, that come to the hospital. Um, They are opening a new women's hospital over in the Junietta Park section. Well, we do know that it's a trauma hospital um, and you go there if you have a gunshot wound, they can save your life. But what you don't necessarily associate is birth and happiness and bringing your family earthside. So they are working pretty diligently to separate those things. But Temple does have a few midwives um, that they will, that they currently employ, they will also be there. And doulas are essential. What we do is that they are evidence-based for doulas and improving outcomes. And doulas are uh, very much so a part of our study and also helping to work through some of the questions about the role of a doula. How close is it to midwifery? And what will that look like in the birthing room with everyone present. What are some of the benefits of having a doula and having a midwife? That social emotional support is very important that can come from a doula. With the midwifery model of care, they're very interpersonal. They spend time. They ask you, how are you? And truly want to know about what's going on in your life, different things that can impact your pregnancy. And so I like how doulas and midwives really work in synchrony together. Um, And we're trying to help curate that for the entire birth team to have that same synchrony with doctors that have with the anesthesiologists and the labor and delivery nurses. So that is something that is very near and dear to our hearts and the benefits outweigh the risks for having a team that includes a doula. So let's talk about that synchronicity. It's so important when it comes to not just how the body is being treated, but how the mind is being treated. So let's talk about the whole person, including mental health. Absolutely. That is my life. That is why I do this work. 
um, because mental health is, in my opinion, because I'm biased as a therapist, that it is one of the most important things that has to be addressed because having a child bringing a human earth side is a mind, body, and soul experience. Therefore, your mind should be well so your body can get the signals that tells your little one that it's safe to enter the world. And so that's why when you have a doula that's there for that social emotional support and then you have your therapist on the back end. So before you go in and after you come out, you get to touch base and get your mind right. And then you have that midwifery model of care. And or if you have an obstetrician that's really intrinsic, that's really in tune, it works out really well. And just having that whole village is something that we are very intentional about creating for every single family that we touch in the study. This is an opportunity sometimes for the gaps to be filled. And in the Black community, especially women of color, all around physical health. And there's certain pre-existing conditions that need to be addressed. And you go into birth, and what that does is exacerbate an existing problem. And sometimes having a doula and a midwife can really mitigate some of these problems, right? Our focus is exactly those people who are experiencing those comorbidities. So those that are struggling with obesity, that may have high blood pressure, that may have cardiovascular issues, because what we do know is that 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 connection with those comorbidities plus pregnancy does not give the best outcomes in the fourth trimester. So our target is those that are struggling with those because within the study, we're also connected with a cardiologist, an internal medicine and obstetrics. And so we really want to create that continuum of care. So when we say the village, we really mean the village. If you need a nephrologist, you'll have one, a cardiologist, an internal medicine, a doula, obstetrician and or a midwife, your nurses, your therapist, your lactation professional, your village is going to show up and show out for you. So let's talk about the village and some of the experiences. So I get a lot of referrals for birthing people who are in the postpartum phase who had really traumatic birthing experiences. And one thing that I love is the relationship that I've been able to curate with many providers who trust that they can do a handoff um, to myself or my organization that will take care of them. Um, So I've had women who come and they are coping with the trauma from a C-section that they had to get additional liters of blood because they were hemorrhaging or they were separated from their baby for a long period of time. Um, And a long period of time for a new parent, it can be hours or days, you know? And so they are trying to, you know, reimagine this birth that they had in mind to the birth that they had in reality. And sometimes it's really hard to grieve the image of what you had in your mind for what it was going to look like to bring your child earthside to now what happened. And so we do a lot of processing through those things. Um, And I absolutely love that the trust is there, especially for a mental health professional where it's still stigmatized in a Black community. And they see us, especially at Oshun Family Center, because all of our therapists identify as people of color, because this is another for us, by us model. Um, We have some of the most beautiful humans that come through our doors because I get to smell new babies that come to the office and people share some of the most intimate details of their journey of getting pregnant, staying pregnant and having their humans earthside. I have literally worked with women who are going through fertility treatments and I have been there since day one from picking out their sperm donor to getting their transfer to now we have a human that's turning one years old and I'm just in awe of all of those experiences that I get to sit as a passenger, as a guide on those journeys to parenthood. And we want more of those. So let's talk about some tips and surviving and thriving 
while giving birth? I always say knowledge is power. And I don't mean educational knowledge, foundational knowledge that you have to go to an institution to get. Just being well-versed in what your options are. So if you are pregnant and you want to figure out, okay, how do I now have my kid Earthside? You can have an obstetrician. Or do you want a midwife? How can you find a doula? And so knowing that all of those things are your options, being able to interview your potential provider, setting up a consultation visit, um, and knowing what the statistics are for that hospital with C-section rates, death rates, and also knowing, do you all induce everybody at 39 weeks? Or is it a medical reason that you're inducing people at 39 weeks? You know, so it is about knowing some of the questions that you should ask, because oftentimes those answers aren't offered. And once you have as much information as you can get, you get to sit with your village and it can be with your therapist, with your partner, with your mom, Mm -hmm. you know, and figure out what is the best course of action for you moving forward, whether that's feeding, diapering, all of that. And you need that advocate, especially when you're giving birth. You're you're not in your right mind. (laughs) Right. You're trying to bring a life into this world and you can't always expect the partner to also be completely with it. So having Mm -hmm. an advocate or doula there, somebody there to speak to your needs and to also know you well enough to know when something's going wrong or right. Yes. And so doulas play a role to remind the birthing person, to remind the partner. Remember, we came up with that birthing plan and these are some of the things that you wanted. And here are some of the things that you didn't want. Make sure when your provider comes back in, you're able to reiterate what it is that your desires are and have a conversation to ask what is the medical necessity of this or that. Um, I think one mistake that we make is we put doulas in this role of more of a, a medical activist that is in real time going to like fight the battle. But we are there as doulas for social emotional support that encourage the clients to be elevated into that role so they can do it for themselves. And now you have an event coming up. Can you tell us a little bit about what to expect? And what are some of the highlights? Black Maternal Health Week, this is the fifth year the Black Mamas Matter Alliance um, is doing their annual Black Maternal Health Week. For us in the city of Philadelphia, myself and the Maternal Wellness Village, we have come together. This is our third year um, coming together to plan events for Black Maternal Health Week, which is April 11th through the 17th. So we are kicking off at Temple University's Student Faculty Center with a perinatal health symposium um, where we have a full day, including four workshops and an opening um, from some of the major players in the city, like the chair of the Maternal Mortality Review Committee, Dr. Astameta. We also have um, a representative, Angela Saunders, coming from Morgan Cephas' office, who is the state representative in the 191st district, um, who has introduced legislation that impact Black bodies and a host of other people that are coming through to provide information to the community. And then we end the week with a birth worker brunch that'll be hosted at the Discovery Center um, in North Philadelphia on Reservoir Drive. And so I encourage everybody to go to the website and to our, our event break page for all of the events in the middle. So give me the dates on that. April 11th through the 17th um, is the week. We are hosting events on April 11th at Temple. We have a virtual event on the 12th. We have yoga in West Philly on the 13th. We have a fundraiser on the 14th. And we have the birth worker brunch to round off the week on the 15th. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Salima, for being here. Thank you for having me. 
At Devereaux Advanced Behavioral Health, we exist to change lives by unlocking and nurturing human potential for people living with emotional, behavioral, or cognitive differences. We were founded in 1912 by a special education teacher in South Philadelphia, and since then, we've been treating the most vulnerable members of the population in the same way we would treat our own families. To learn more about our evidence-based, trauma-focused care for children, adolescents, and adults, visit Devereaux.org. The Philly Rising Changemaker of the Week. Presented by Devro Advanced Behavioral Health. Hey, one of these Antoinette Lee here with this week's Philly Rising Changemaker. Their name is Nairobi Cologne, but they're better known as Teacher Roby. They're an influencer and art teacher in Camden, New Jersey, and they're bridging communities by teaching not only students and young people about representation of the non-binary community, but they're also educating society as a whole through their social media platforms. Here's more from our Philly Rising Changemaker of the Week, Teacher Roby. Welcome to Bridging Philly. Now you're a teacher at Kip Whittier Middle School in Camden, right? So tell us about the school. Sure. Kip Whittier is located in Camden, New Jersey, and we have been around for, I want to say, going on eight years. So it's fairly new. Um, I've been working there for four years going on five. The school is super community-based. We really try to be involved with the community as much as possible. We try to get all of our students from Camden as well. So all of the students who attend are from Camden. And I mean, it's a great place to work. I think they also really care about not only the community, but their staff as well. So, you know, they're constantly asking us about like where we see ourselves in the future and pushing us to like be on our career paths, even if it's like not teaching, for example, but using it as like a means to an end. So I just think as a, as a school, Whittier itself is very caring about the community and the people that they serve. Are you originally from the area? So I'm actually from Brooklyn, New York, and I moved to Camden seven years ago for college. I went to Rutgers Camden University and Camden really, it reminded me a lot of my own community because I'm from Bedford-Stuyvesant. You know, when I was growing up, Bed-Stuy was not the the best place to be um, growing up. You know, there was a lot of drug activity, a lot of violence, uh, just a lot of things that, you know, you don't want kids getting involved with. And so when I came to Camden, it reminded me of my community in a way that like it is still a community. And even though there's a lot of things going on, like I saw things that I was just taken aback by. And I was also working with kids in college. So I knew my kids were seeing that as well because I was walking to and from work and I would see these things. So I know when kids are walking to and from school, they would also see these things. It kind of pulled me in in such a way that I really cared about the kids that I was serving from the very beginning. And I started working with kids in Camden my freshman year of college. So what made you want to become an art teacher? I have always loved art. When I was in high school, my senior year, I knew I wanted to be an an artist or at least work in art in some capacity, whether it be teaching, a professor, or actually just creating my own art, art therapy. Like I knew I wanted to do something with art. I credit that to my my high school art teacher, Miss H, she saw something in me and she really pushed me to be who I am today. She was the kind of person who really never gave up on you. She was the kind of person who didn't let you give up on yourself. And that was really the most important thing for me. And, and that's what I take with me being an art teacher today is not letting kids give up on themselves, not make, not letting them ha- make excuses like, I'm not an artist, I can't do this. Or, you know, I've never done something like this before. That's fine. 
let's do it together. You know, that's my approach to a lot of things, especially when it comes to art. I know that art, especially in a community like Camden, can be so important for kids to express themselves, Um, especially in my classroom. The main thing I want kids to be expressing themselves and how they feel, whether it's I'm angry, I want to express my anger, whether it's I'm super happy, I've got a lot to look forward to, I'm grateful. I give them the opportunity to share that. Tell us about your decision to come out as non-binary to your students. What was their reaction like? One day I really, I, I woke up and I was kind of tired of being called Miss and um, knowing that that didn't sit right with me. And I actually was so comfortable talking to my students about it because of how supportive my school is. They've always been very supportive of of, uh, the LGBTQ community and any marginalized community. I didn't even tell my school before I was in class talking to my advisory, like, listen, y'all, I got to tell y'all something. This is what it is. I want you all to call me teacher Roby instead of Miss Roby. Are you okay with that? And they were like, yeah, let's, what what are we learning today type thing, you know? So the students really didn't have a, a reaction. I mean, maybe a couple of questions here and there after the lesson, um, but nobody was very much, the school was also very supportive. As I said, being a non-binary teacher at this point in, at this stage, you know, two years, almost three years later, it definitely is something different. It is definitely something outside of societal norms. And I'm understanding of that. And I want to continue to bring this outside perspective because I just feel like people look at me and kind of understand like, oh, okay, well, this person is actually a a cool person. Like people make this assumption in their minds. Oh, being non-binary means this. It is bad. It is not right. It is wrong. And when people see me and see the content that I create, especially on social media, they can, you know, look to me to kind of get these answers that they're looking for and see their own identities and see that they can be their true self and express their true self when they see people who are doing that exact thing. You know, being non-binary really opens the door to having an open classroom and having a safe space because of the fact that I'm able to be myself. And kids look at me and they're like, teacher Obi is being themselves. I can be myself too. I like that you pointed out that through your representation, you're breaking down misconceptions about the non-binary community. I noticed in your TikTok videos, that's also what much of your content addresses. So can you tell us what some of those specific misconceptions are that you've encountered? So I think the common misconception is that I'm teaching kids how to be gay and and that's just not what's happening. That I don't teach kids art or I don't teach kids the core subjects and I do teach art. (laughs) What I don't teach is how to be gay. I teach them how to be safe, how to be themselves, whatever that may look like. Let's talk more about when you began to educate people through your TikTok. I know that you're fairly new to the platform, but you grew very quickly. Tell us about that. Yeah, it kind it kind of did happen organically. I originally started using TikTok to build up relationships with my students during the pandemic. However, it has now snowballed into so much more. I, I gained a large following very quickly. I've only had TikTok for about two years. I'm at about almost half a million followers and, and growing. It did turn into me being able to inspire people. And even though like I do get a lot of hate on TikTok, I get way more love. And a lot of people who he who who DM me or or send me messages across all platforms, 
asking me, you know, how did I do what I do? I, you know, what do they have to do to become like me? And even people who are non-binary who say they never thought they would see someone who's non-binary and open and, and teaching and the way that I'm doing it. We've discussed some of the upside, but what kind of challenges have you encountered from being TikTok famous and living your truth in front of 500,000 people? I do get backlash of like, you're mentally ill you're mentally unstable, you know, you're grooming our kids. These are the things that I hear. And these are what, this is the thing, the stuff that's in my comment section. In a lot of ways, I ignore it, uh, but I do read it. You know, I do read it sometimes. I do, I do respond to it sometimes, but never coming from a place of hate, always coming from a place of love, a place of compassion, a place of, I understand why you feel this way, but let me, uh, let me tell you why I'm actually a really good person and why you shouldn't make these hateful comments about me without knowing me. And I saw in one of your videos that you're also Afro-Latina. What layer does that add belonging to multiple marginalized communities? I didn't come out to myself until I was in college. One, my school was very homophobic. All of my schools, like growing up, like they were just not welcoming of LGBTQ community. And so even though that was something that I knew in the back of my mind was true for myself, that I did like the same sex, I couldn't let that be known. I couldn't be, like, I really had hate towards the LGBTQ community for, 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 for many years. The amount of self-love and work that I had to put in to come out to myself and then to be okay with myself took a lot. And then I've always been Afro-Latinas. And I just feel like that part of me has always been at the forefront of my life because I'm very family oriented. And so it can be very difficult. It can be very challenging. It it definitely requires a lot of self-love, a lot of self-care, a lot of building your own relationships that that are very meaningful. Did I feel like some of my family members maybe felt like it was weird or even now still I have to explain what it means to be non-binary to my family? Like, yes, that happens. But at the end of the day, my family is supportive. They love me very much. And so that was one of the biggest reasons I've been able to kind of live in my truth the way that I do right now. So I'm very blessed in that aspect. I know that social media can be a rough place. You know, the comments, the trolls. What keeps you motivated to keep going, to keep posting and doing what you do? Some of the responses that I get on social media in terms of DMs and and messages saying that I should keep doing what I'm doing. I'm really inspiring people. That is one of people don't understand how much that helps, how much like people will just send a message, a hateful one or a positive one and like never think about it again. But it really does affect the people on the other side of the receiving side of that. And it also keeps me going, knowing that most, not most, excuse me, at least 25 percent of our youth identify with a combination of pronouns that are outside of she, her. And so it, it, it keeps me going to know that I'm not the only one. It keeps me going to know that there are other people out there like me benefiting from my content and youth need people like me. I needed somebody like me when I was growing up and I did not have that. And that is one of the main things that keeps me going. Like, Thank you so much, Teacher Roby, for sharing your time and story with our listeners on Bridging Philly. That's it for this week's Philly Rising Changemaker. If you're interested in following Teacher Roby's journey, you can find them on TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, all the platforms at Roby Got Souls. So that's R-O-B-I-G-O-T-S-O-L-E-S, Roby Got Souls. Their full story is also on our website. If you know a changemaker we should highlight next, someone making a difference in your community, anyone in the Delaware Valley, please let me know. You can find me on Twitter at A-R-L-E on air. That's A-R-L-E on air.
Thanks for joining us on Bridging Philly, brought to you by Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives. Be sure to connect with us on Twitter at Bridging Philly and with me at Raquel on Air. And of course, please subscribe to the podcast. For Antoinette Lee, Shower Day Howard, and our producer, Arian Fulcher, I'm Raquel Williams. Be well.